Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Just because we get around Talking about my generation Things ain't do look awful Talking about my generation I hope I die before I get old Talking about my generation It's my generation my generation, baby Why don't you all There's really no greater song to kick off our Rock God series than that. My Generation by The Who, probably one of the most recognizable songs of the 60s. It actually um, was recorded and released in 1965, and it quickly became the signature anthem for a new generation of young people who kind of grown discontent with mainstream culture and institutions. Now, quick survey so I can get a, a sense of who I'm talking to. How many of you were alive in the 60s, besides Pastor Dave? How many of you, okay? Keep your hands up if you were born in the 60s, born in the 60s, grew up in the 60s. Hands up. How many of you still holding your hands up? You don't actually remember the 60s. You know you were alive, but okay. The 60s was a a time of tumult, kind of political and social upheaval, race riots. Think about the 60s. Hippiedom, the war in Vietnam, assassination of JFK. 1967 became known as the summer of love. And it's really when the counterculture became mainstream. Um, you had the flower people who were on the fringes kind of marching down the streets in protest. The civil rights movement was ignited, and the British invasion altered the landscape of American music forever. And that's actually really when my generation entered the rock and roll pantheon as one of the most celebrated and referenced songs of all time. Uh, Rolling Stone a few years back uh, compiled a list of the top 500 greatest songs of all time, and it was named number 11. It was written by the Who guitarist Pete Townsend um, for rebellious British youths who were called... Mods. You know the mod squad? Remember that? The haircuts and everything? Expressing their feeling that older people just don't get it. <laughs> and legend has, I was doing some research on this, that Townsend actually wrote the song on a train because he was inspired by the Queen Mother who was alleged to have his 1935 Packard hearse towed off a street in London because she was offended by the sight of it whenever she drove through the neighborhood. So he wrote My Generation in response to that. Uh, now, perhaps the most striking element of the song are the lyrics, right? They're kind of the, the most distilled statements of youthful rebellion in rock history. People try to put us down, talking about my generation, just because we can get around. Kind of a call and response thing. And really made memorable by Roger Daltrey's infamous sneering delivery. It's kind of this angry, frustrated stutter. Things they do look awful cold. And then, you know this one, I hope I die before I get old, right? One of the most often quoted lines. Really a song of generational discontent. Disillusionment with the establishment and the way things were. It's kind of like young people as they looked around at Western society and all the the societal ills. Racism, corruption, violence, and they kind of like raised the banner of revolution. But it's funny because um, you kind of look back on the 60s now and you look at that, all that that angst, all that, you know, talk of peace, of, of a new world of revolution. And you look at that from the rear view mirror of the 21st century and you wonder, has anything really changed? I mean, we're still engulfed in another, you know, unpopular war overseas. It's like the making of wars, there is no end. AIDS now actually engulfing entire continents, kind of learning that actually sexual liberation is clearly not the answer. 
And in some ways, some of the, the, the seminal heroes of the 60s, you think of like, you know, like Jim Morrison and, and Jimi Hendrix just kind of getting lost in their own, you know, addictions and kind of, you know, drowning and imploding and self-absorption. What, I mean, what does it take to really change a generation? I mean, is it possible for one person to still make a difference in this world? Or is that like a naive assumption of like a generation just, I don't know, on drugs? Well, tonight I want to talk to you about holy discontent. And what it takes to truly change a generation. Our generation right here in 2007, because I think it'd be a mistake to, to write off the discontent of the 60s with like a cynicism, like, well, the world can't change. One person can't, can't really live a revolutionary life. Because that would be to miss the power that actually a single life, maybe your life, can have when it aligns your deep sense of discontent with the frustration that God feels when he looks down at our broken world. I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 2 in your Bible. If you need a Bible, there's plenty on the rows there. People have been stealing them all day, so we might be short. So would you pass them down, make sure everybody gets a copy there. And uh, page 40 if you're using that. And uh, the Bible is kind of our playbook here at Liquid. We regard it as the living Word of God. It's, it's not something that's antiquated or outdated, but actually is the very truth of God that still speaks deeply, has the power to, to penetrate into our reality here in 2007. Now here's the deal. Central figure of the book of Exodus is a man named, does anyone know this? Moses, holy Moses, okay? Actually an otherwise ordinary man who looked at the world around him and actually saw a lot wrong with it. Impression, uh, oppression, I should say, injustice, suffering. And something stirred inside of him. And because of that, literally an entire generation was forever changed. Now here's the deal. This may be your first time in church or first time maybe even opening up a Bible in like a long time. And that's totally cool. Don't be intimidated. We are all learners here. But, but you may know Moses kind of popularly as like, oh, right, he's the guy who parted the, the Red Sea. Charlton Heston, right? Yeah. Um, he was the ancient leader of the Israelites who actually led his people out of slavery into the Promised Land. And that was an incredible accomplishment in the ancient world, literally changing the face of history. But, but I want to look briefly at like, what, what came before God using Moses that way? Using an ordinary man to have an extraordinary impact on this generation. Because world changers aren't like just born. They're actually molded and developed by God in a very unique way. Now, you know, I don't know if you consider yourself a world changer, but, but my guess is that inside every one of you, at some, some level, there's this nagging sense that things in this world are not the way they ought to be. I mean, if you, you, you're even vaguely tuned into the news, what you see on TV or read a newspaper, or you, maybe you see in your classroom or the city streets on your way to work, or wherever, you know that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. There's pain, there's suffering, injustice still exists in our world. And deep down, my suspicion is that each one of us, if we truly believed that God saw what we see, and that he cared too, and actually wanted to use us to make a difference, we'd actually do something about it. We'd be moved to action. And that's how true generational change takes place. When one individual feels this firestorm of frustration... And is used by God to literally impact his entire generation. Okay, Exodus 2. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. This is a, Moses is like in his 20s. This occurred when he was a young adult, just setting out as a man in search of his life's mission. It says this. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Now just pause there a minute. Just to give you a little background for context. Uh, Moses lived what we would call a posh life. <laughs> uh, as a kid, he actually was raised in Egypt by the daughter of Pharaoh. So he actually grew up like in the royal Egyptian court, like in a castle. Um, he was pretty much accustomed to wealth, education, freedom, privilege. But here's the deal. 
despite living the posh Egyptian you know, life, Moses always knew that deep down inside he was not really an Egyptian. See, Moses was a Hebrew by birth. He was a Jew who was only living the Egyptian life accidentally. There's this whole backstory of how his, his mother actually gave him up to be raised by Pharaoh's daughter in order to save his life. That's, that's early on. But, but when the text says he went out and saw his own people working hard, it's talking about his fellow Jews, a, a group at the time that had been held captive by the Egyptians for more than four hundred years. Essentially, Pharaoh and his lieutenants were building a thriving economy on the, ba- on the weary backs of like Hebrew slave labor. <laughs> and the work ethic that, that the slave masters, it was like merciless. Day after day, Hebrew men and women and children with no rights, little hope for future freedom, they were pushed past the point of exhaustion in like the sweltering Middle Eastern sun as they made bricks for Pharaoh's vast construction programs. If you look at back at Exodus uh, 1, 11 through 14, it describes it this way. It says, The Egyptians organized the, the Hebrews into work gangs and put them to hard labor under gang foremen. They built the storage cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the harder the Egyptians worked, the more children the Israelites had. Children everywhere. And the Egyptians got so that they couldn't stand the Israelites and treated them worse than ever, crushing them with slave labor. They made them miserable with hard labor, making bricks and mortar and back-breaking work in the fields. They piled on the work, crushing them under the cruel workload. So, so, so get this. Moses' people had actually accepted that as reality, being mistreated and exploited. Like, that was their norm, believing there was, like, nothing they could do to, like, impact change. And that's the context as Moses went out to see his own people, watched them at the hard labor, and his heart goes out and it likely became heavy as he saw the oppression of them. But now watch what happens next. An already troubling situation gets worse in verse 11 when Moses looks up to find an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. We all have those moments in life that's like something snaps. This is like a pivotal moment for Moses in his 20s. He's become aware that his countrymen are being you know, treated as slaves. That's bad. But now he sees them being physically abused too. One of them being savagely beaten. And this level of injustice just kind of builds something inside Moses so that he feels he's got to do something. Now, now here's the deal. Let me pause here. And I want to ask you to recall the last time you saw a physical beating in person, up close. Maybe you've never seen one. I, I'm actually not... Now, look, I'm not talking about something you've seen like in the Bourne Ultimatum, okay? This is not like... Not something staged or scripted. I'm talking about a real fight. How many of you actually seen a real fight up close in personal? I actually hope you've never witnessed one. I can actually recall seeing only really one vicious in my entire life, and I, I honestly kind of wish I could wipe the memory from my mind. It was in the seventh grade at Leonard R. Parks Elementary School. <laughs> and although that's over two decades ago, I can like see it in my mind's eye as clear as day. We had a kid named uh, Joey in our class at the time, and he was the school bully. Pretty angry kid. He's actually not that much bigger than most, but just vicious. You know, like in seventh grade, like at that age, kids make name for themselves by like what they do. Like, oh yeah, right, Scott's the brain, Ricky's the athlete, Joey was the fighter. And most often, he would pick on a kid named Jimmy. And Jimmy was the loser. I don't even know why to this day. But he was a kid in our class who everybody picked on. It was pretty brutal to, you know, to be Jimmy. You know, kids made fun of him. He sat alone at lunch, the whole thing. Anyway, one day in middle school social studies class, the teacher caught Joey napping, like, you know, and said, oh, could you tell us, uh, Joey? You know, and, and he was like, huh, what? And Jimmy went <laughs> and rolled his eyes. And Joey turned and looked at him. He said, you... Me, 315, flagpole. <laughs> and you know what that means. 
Sure enough, 3.15 comes, ring the bell. Joey marches out there. School ended, and he actually blocked the fence where we all had to like go through to like to walk home and all, you know, all, like we all rush out there and everything. We're hanging around to see what happened. And I just, I remember this to this day. I remember Jimmy coming out of school. He didn't come out at first, but then him kind of coming out with his book bag and seeing this crowd of kids and then Joey just standing there. And I, I remember him looking like, like kind of like side to side to see if like there's maybe some other way of escape. And that's when Joey actually started running toward him. And it was weird because this, like even now my memory like slows down. Everything happened so quickly, but it was like it was in slow mo. And all I remember is seeing Joey run up to Jimmy and just getting in his face and just pointing and screaming in his face. And Jimmy, we were kind of like, you know, back there by the, by the, by the end of the, the room. And Jimmy is just there with his hand on his book bat, and I just see him shaking his head, just going, no, 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 no. I, and I remember him just letting his arms down to his side, just kind of like pleading his case. And as he did, Joey just turning around like this and pretending like he's going to walk away and coming around and cracking him in the middle of his face and the sound of it I will never forget. The sound of his nose shattering and his, his, the front of his teeth just shattering and the cry that went up from Jimmy who for some reason didn't fall to the ground right away and I wish he had because Joey actually wound up again and a second roundhouse and I remember seeing this cloud of red just explode from Jimmy's face and then Joey was on top of him straddling him actually just laying punch after punch after punch after punch into the middle of this kid's face. And, and then it like becomes cloudy. Kids like started running and teachers, you know, poured out, pulled, pulled off Jimmy. But I'll never forget the sound and the sight. That blood pooling on the playground pavement is a sickening experience. Unfortunately, I think one I'll never forget. Beatings are incredibly tough to watch. And if you are a normal, you know, human being, you don't ever really forget the horrific sights and the sounds that accompany them. And, and this, is, this is literally exactly the type of stomach-churning event that Moses is exposed to here in Exodus 2 as he watches an Egyptian guy just wailing on a fellow Hebrew, the sound of fist on bone, of flesh and blood being torn, and it's like the injustice of the situation is too much for Moses to take, and suddenly something inside of him snaps. Verse 12 says this, Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So, so, so get this. Moses races to the defense of his countrymen. He grabs the Egyptian, pulls him off his fellow Hebrew, which probably incited a fight of its own to the death. And like it all happens so quickly that Moses, who's probably like horrified by his own capacity for violence, actually buries this guy in the sand and runs away. Now check this out. The very next day, Moses goes out again to see his people. And what does he see? Verse 13. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. Same sights. Same sounds. Same spattering of blood. And he, and he breaks up the, the fight and he shouts, Why? He asks the one in the wrong. Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? It's like, here we go again. What is wrong? Fists flying, teeth shattering, noses breaking. And it takes Moses to the absolute outer edge of his emotional limits. He literally must have been like, what, what are you, I mean, what is wrong with you? Our whole generation are, are, are in slavery, being beaten by our slave masters, and now you're fighting one another? I, I can't, this is madness. Bill Hybels, in his, in his book titled Holy Discontent, said it was obvious to Moses that his people were actually imploding. The abuse and oppression and exploitation they were suffering in, under Egyptian rule actually escalated to the point of like total insanity. 
And that pushes Moses to this absolute edge of his emotional limits, the breaking point. And he must have been like, that is it. I, have abs- I just can't stand this anymore. It's madness. Like this firestorm of frustration welling up inside and just wrecked something deep inside of him. Life-changing experience number one in his 20s. Now, fast forward to chapter 3. It's actually there at the bottom of the page, and, and sometimes Mo- later Moses comes to a burning bush. Um, he's married now, <laughs> and he's got an ordinary job, actually, as a, as a rancher. He's out, like, shepherding sheep. And he comes upon this, this burning bush, this bush that's actually on fire, but it's not being consumed. And from within that bush, he hears the voice of God calling him, Moses, Moses, and he says, here, here, here I am. And God says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. In other words, he walks literally into the full presence of God's holiness. His blazing moral perfection manifests itself in front of this like ordinary shepherd. And what does God say to Moses now? Look at this, verse 7. The Lord said, I saw it too. I have indeed seen, I've seen the sights, the misery of my people in Egypt. I actually heard the sounds, I heard it too heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And you know what? I am I'm concerned by their suffering. Concerned is a, is a crappy translation in English. The Hebrew word for this is stirred. I am moved. I am agitated because of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land filled with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites. In other words, God says, Moses, I, I've seen the sights of the brutality. I saw it too. I heard the sounds of this injustice. And I am as, I have been stirred in my spirit about this as you are. And then this in verse 9 and 10. And now, the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now you go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people the Israelites, out of Egypt. In other words, God says to Moses, not only heard the cries and seen what you've seen, I actually have the same inner outrage and compassion that you are feeling. And here's what I've decided to do about it. I'm going to use you to change the situation, to put an end to this injustice and impact an entire generation forever. And don't miss this, folks, because I think what God's honestly saying here is, Moses, What you saw that day that made you so unbelievably angry, what you saw when when, when that Egyptian was was laying into that that Hebrew slave, what you saw when those two Hebrews were so lost and frustrated and hopeless by their life on this earth, and they started beating each other, what you've been seeing, what you've been hearing, what sickened you, I can't stand it anymore either. And I'm stirred in my spirit. And I'm going to reach down from heaven and do something about it. I'm going to use you to do it because I see that your heart is actually aligned with my own. And I'm choosing you to be my emissary and world changer in part because I see inside of you what stirs my spirit stirs yours. I see in you passion for your people. I see your emotion. I see a man who can't stand idly by as people are oppressed and exploited. I see that it wrecks you inside, Moses. I see your capacity for activism. I've been looking for that, and I found the man I want. And I'm going to harness that firestorm of frustration that's burning deep inside you and actually use it in a positive way to set an entire generation free. And if you broaden this out, folks, this is key to understanding your purpose in life. 
Because part of the process by which God changes this world is when he finds a man or a woman whose heart becomes perfectly aligned around what frustrates both heaven and earth. What torques the character and nature of a holy God, a God who's both, both perfectly just and completely compassionate, and what frustrates the heart of a man or woman who looks at the world around them and says, this is not the way things ought to be. This is not how God envisioned it, and I am sick of this madness, and I can't stand it anymore. Something has to change. Now, before we get too heavy, let me take a time out and come at this from another angle. In the early 1960s, a popular cartoon character appeared for the first time on television. Let's see if you can guess who he was. He was short, he was balding, kind of ill-spoken. He was a sailor man. Do you remember his name? Yeah, Popeye. You remember this? Okay. Popeye was the icon for an entire generation raised in cartoons in the 60s. And if you remember Popeye, you know that he had a special girl in his life. Olive oil. Ding. And she was a traffic stopper. When she, yeah, when she walked by, men whistled and dogs barked, right? Pickle nose, spaghetti thin arms, flat chest, real looker, okay. Now, the whole premise of Popeye, every episode boiled down to this. Whenever someone threatened the well-being of his special goyle, as he called her, Popeye actually took it all in stride. He was like kind of laid back, he had a long fuse. But if things took on a menacing tone, and it looked like something really terrible might happen to olive oil, then Popeye the sailor man's, Pulse would start racing, his, his, his blood pressure would skyrocket, and his anger would begin to boil, and he'd take it as long as he could. And then he would blurt out the signature phrase that a whole generation had burned into their psyche. That's all I can stand, say it with me, and I can't stand no more. <laughs> Dubious grammar, I know. But he was a sailor man, right? I can't stand no more. And he'd pop open this can of spinach, swallow the green lump in one gulp, and immediately like this, this stream of supernatural strength flowed into his bodily, mostly, of course, his forearms. Bing, bing! <laughs> and they'd like balloon up. He was like anatomically improbable. Uh, but it would give Popeye the strength to crush the opposition, save the precious olive oil, and be like this unstoppable force for good in the world. Amazing cartoon. <laughs> but that single line, that's all I can stand. And I can't stand no more. That actually means something to some of you who look around and see in your world sights and sounds that sicken you. Kids going to bed hungry at night. Disease ravaging the third world. War making widows and orphans of innumerable families. And the list goes on. My question to you is this. What can't you stand? What can't you stand? When Moses couldn't stand, he couldn't stand seeing fellow Hebrews being oppressed and beaten, God tapped him at the burning bush and he said, I can't stand it either. And I want to use you to do something about it. And Moses said, then use me to make a difference in this generation. What can't you stand? What is it in this world that you simply cannot bear? Because it's such a source of angst when you see it, of, 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 of this like holy outreach that it actually wrecks your heart and mirrors the justice and the compassion of a holy God who desires to set a crooked world straight. I mean, it could be poverty, racism, AIDS, war, addiction, homelessness, broken marriages. What is it that stirs your heart and God's heart as well so that they actually become aligned around what frustrates both heaven and earth? 
Because it wrecks you when you see it in the world around you. Whatever that is, this is what Bill Hybels has termed your holy discontent. And I want to give complete credit to Bill Hybels for this entire message because I think this concept is profound enough that if you take a moment here to consider what injustice in this world that like wrecks you internally, you actually have a chance of discovering one of the holy purposes for which God has put you on this earth. This is the story of the story of God and our stories just intersecting. I mean, you see it all throughout the Old Testament and into the New. Ordinary people getting stirred up by the sights and sounds of injustice in our world and God harnessing their holy discontent to actually change entire generations. I think of King David. Remember David? As in David and Goliath was also a cartoon. Okay, yeah. Uh, King David actually, yeah, when he became famous with Goliath, how old is he, you think? Anyone take a guess? Yeah, like, yeah, between 12 and 15 somewhere they put him. Teenager, maybe. (laughs) He's a young man and his father tells him to take food to his older brothers who are in the army. They're in the Hebrew army and they're facing the enemy who's this giant warrior who actually is nine, actually was an aberration, nine foot mercenary, Goliath, who's trash talking the God of the Israelites every day. And the brothers of David are like a little annoyed by that, but he's not really moved. But David, who's just a teen at this point, he shows up and he hears this giant trash talking God and he's like, this is, this is outrageous. Who is going to stand up and do something about this guy? And all the adult soldiers are like, not me. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. He's nine feet tall. And it drives David crazy. He can't stand it. And he comes to this Popeye moment. He says, well, that, 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 this is all I can stand. I can't stand no more. And the next thing you know, he's running full bore in 1 Samuel 17, straight at this nine-foot mercenary with nothing but a slingshot and a couple smooth stones in his hand. Just raw passion. How rational was that act? Where was the business plan for that? <laughs> But but God sees this raw, untamable, unbridled passion. He feels the holy discontent in David. And he says, I'm actually going to aim that one smooth stone coming out of the young boy's hand like a laser-guided missile and take him out. And he did. Steal this Bible. Read it for yourself. (laughs) Take it home. We don't call it stealing. We call it sharing. You can take the Bible with you. There's a book called Nehemiah in the Old Testament, named after a guy. He actually was more middle-aged. He had a cushy job, actually was an expatriate, lived overseas working for a foreign king. And, and he got bad news one day that back in Jerusalem, the walls were breaking down, leaving God's people vulnerable and exposed to their enemies. But the worst part is that he hears that the neighboring countries were laughing, laughing out loud at how powerless God was. <laughs> like God can't even summon the strength to rebuild the walls and protect his people. And Nehemiah hears this and he thinks about it and he takes it to heart. And again, he's an adult. But what does this powerful leader do? He breaks down bawling. He actually just sobbing. Because he thinks about God being laughed at and he has his Popeye moment. He says, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. And so he goes to the foreign king at the risk of his life. And he says, here's the deal. I need to take a leave of absence and I need a whole bunch of resources from you for this giant construction project back in my home country. And with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other... He goes about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, accomplishing one of the greatest reconstruction efforts in ancient history to the glory of God. What got him in the game? A holy discontent, something he couldn't stand. Steal this book, read it for yourself, Nehemiah. What can't you stand? What can't you stand? What wrecks you when you see it on MSNBC? What wrecks you when you see it in the cover of the paper? Let me bring this back to the real world. 1960s, our generation. 
Martin Luther King became famous for what he couldn't stand. The racial oppression he saw all around him in the States in the 50s and 60s, it ripped him apart. He couldn't stand the whites-only signs on drinking fountains, in bathrooms, in restaurants. He couldn't stand the facts that blacks, by law, were pushed to the back of the bus at the end of the receiving line for education, employment, and housing opportunities. He wanted the lynching of black people stopped. Imagine that. He wanted segregation banished. Imagine that. <laughs> he wanted justice to be served so that his kids could grow up in a different world than the one he was living in. And finally, the holy discontent in him brought Martin Luther King to his Popeye moment where he said, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. And he knew that his activism would probably cost him his life. And it did. But I don't think he had a choice. That discontent inside was wrecking him. So King spent the rest of his brief 39 years working tirelessly towards racial equality. He had this vision for a new kind of world that would actually be characterized by nonviolence, by freedom and justice. And actually it was in 1964, a few years before he was assassinated, when King was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And I love this. He said this in his acceptance speech. Check this out. I refuse to accept the idea that the isness of man's present nature makes him morally incapable of reaching up for the eternal oughtness that forever confronts him. That's what it looks like to live out of a holy discontent, where a sense of oughtness, this is not the way things ought to be, it's like so strong, it's so compelling, that it actually overtakes isness, the reality, complacency with the way things are. And he says, I have to renovate reality or it's going to kill me. In the real world, I think of Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision. This guy was actually a business guy. Had no interest in ministry. Businessman traveled a lot to the Far East. And when he was traveling on his business, he would see these little kids standing in the food lines. A lot of them actually at the time were orphans from the Korean War in third world Asia. And he'd be traveling with his, brief, you know, his suitcase and briefcase and everything. And he'd watch these little kids at the end of the line literally like, like it looked to him like fainting. <laughs> while they're standing in line for food. And he's like, why can't you hurry up? The, those kids are fainting. They've been standing in the heat so long. And, and he said, oh, no, they're not fainting. They're actually dropping dead. He said, wait, what? Why are you allowing children to die? And they said, well, there's not enough food at the front of the food line. And that was that. And so the kids at the back of the line, they're going to die. It was just hard reality, local people explained to him. And that reality wrecked Bob Pierce. And he had his Popeye mom. He said, no, no, it's not on my watch. I, I, can't, I can't stand that. And so actually when he got back to the U.S. from his business trip, he gathered together his most affluent business partners in a meeting room in L.A. And he said, you know what? We're going to get food to the front of the food lines so that everyone has enough, and we're going to do it, even if it kills me. And it almost did. But that was the holy discontent that gave birth to World Vision, an organization which now feeds over 100 million people in 96 countries every day, every year. Entire generations. Thousands of people fed every day. Because some ordinary salesman actually said, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. And he allowed a simple thing like third world hunger, a world away, to wreck his heart as it wrecks God's. And then he actually partnered with God to do something about it. What wrecks you? What is your, your one thing that when you see it in the world around you, it's like, you feel it, you know? It doesn't matter if you're a teacher, a businessman, a musician, a student, a mom, a drug rep, a day trader, or a truck driver. What wrecks you? The thing you know and feel in your heart of hearts, that's not the way God wants them to be. 
Is it, is it injustice of some kind? Extreme poverty? Homelessness? Is it loveless, you know, marriages or abused children or battered wives? Or the pandemic of AIDS? Crooked politics? Well, I, I, I wonder, in like this room, I'm like, I wonder what it is, literally, for each of you. It could be a dysfunctional or, or slowly dying, inwardly focused church. That's what it is for me. <laughs> That's my burning bush, my Popeye passion. <laughs> to create a church with God's help that is compelling and creative and relentlessly focused on one thing, actually helping bring God into crystal clear focus for people who are far from Him, because they count too. And that, that discontent for me was birthed out of a childhood spent in this painfully inward-focused church where all 47 of us gave high fives and sang our hymns and we, we loved the insider language and maybe had four visitors in the 18 years that I went to that church. Best part was in high school. When Joey came up to me, he actually had a tragedy in his family. And I guess it, something happened in him. I don't know. And, and he came up to me and said, hey, I hear you're religious. And I'm like, uh, all right, yeah, I'm the religious guy. <laughs> and he goes, maybe, you know what, you know, come to church with you some, some Sunday. And I remember being like, oh, no, 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 no. Whatever you do, don't do that, Joey. <laughs> if God has placed even a, a spark of spiritual life in you, do not come to our church. Because <laughs> in 59 minutes, it will be snuffed out like that. <laughs> don't, Joey. Don't. I was like, Christ counts for everyone. And if our faith doesn't intersect with the gritty details of ordinary lives, then what's the point? And so when I grew up, I thought either I'm going to give up on church or we're actually going to have to create a new one. Renovate reality. Here we are in a hotel, liquid church. <laughs> Birth of holy discontent. That, that's me. What is it for you? What's the one thing that when you see it or experience it, it causes, this is a good way to put it, damage to your soul. That brings you to your Popeye moment. Birth of burning bush experience where you sense God may actually be inviting you into an intentional and personalized partnership with him to renovate reality. For Moses, who's protecting his people from abuse, which lined up with the righteousness of a holy God. For Bob Pierce, it was getting food at the front of a food line, mirroring the compassion of a holy God. For Martin Luther King, it was realizing racial reconciliation, mirroring the justice of a holy God. For other people, it's other things. In fact, I'd like to take a, a chance here and just go live and pull someone out of our congregation. I'm going to invite Tim Purnell up here. Many of you know Tim's smiling face from behind the glasses. He's one of the extraordinary drummers on our worship team. Welcome Tim on up here. Come on up, Timmy. Now, here's the deal. What you probably don't know is that Tim is, uh, is also uh, a teacher, a public educator, and actually an administrator. In fact, a few years ago, Tim actually became the youngest public school principal in the state of New Jersey. How, how old were you? Thanks, uh, 26. 26 years old. Now, okay, all right, yeah, all right, all right. Okay. That's not why I called him up. <laughs> not the point. It's not about ambition or smarts, but there was a holy discontent experience from Tim's childhood that kind of guided you to invest your life this way. Sure, thanks, Tim. Um, the, uh, actually, public education was the last thing I wanted to go into. Um, middle school and high school were tormenting years. I was the Jimmy in your story. Um, I was beaten, bruised, shoved in lockers. Um, actually, do you mind if I share two story, quick stories? Uh, one, I, I decided to go out for lacrosse because I figured I'd be a little more social with the rest of the guys. And um, when the coach wasn't looking, I don't know if you've seen lacrosse balls, but they're pretty hard. And when the coach wasn't looking, they actually tried to whiz them at my head. You know, we have a helmet, but you can imagine all the near misses and the welts on my body. I'd go home every day and suck it up 
uh, and try to fit in. Uh, very difficult experience. One time, I actually, uh, junior year of high school, um, I was putting away some drums underneath the counter, and two kids at the time, steel-tipped boots were in. And they trapped me underneath the counter and continued to kick until it shattered my nose. Blood was out. I, I lost consciousness. And uh, fortunately, a guy actually picked me up and brought me down to the office, and they called uh, the ambulance. But um, it, public education was the last thing I wanted to go into. I went, I, <laughs> I went to college, uh, University of Delaware, and I thought, you know, I'll go with the, the family practice, pre-med. And uh, the Lord was hugging, uh, tugging at my heartstrings, you know, trying to go, you know, you should go into public education. I thought, no way, no way, <laughs> not after what I've been through. Uh, I taught for a few years in Montclair, and then uh, the Lord gave me an opportunity to be a middle, uh, middle school principal in Great Meadows at the age of 26. And uh, ever since then, I have vowed in each district I've been in to create an atmosphere that was safe for kids, an anti-bullying policy that was, you know, st- withstand, you know, the kids and that there was a, that they didn't have to go through what I went through when I was in school. Um, so that's almost, you know, that's the holy discontent he really called me into. So, so every district that you've been in, you set up like a anti-bullying yeah, I hotline. I, yeah, just completely attack the issue because it's, it's prevalent in every school. So. What struck me about this is that I was talking with Tim, and um, without getting into the details of it, but Tim recently left a, 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 an incredible position in a very affluent district. With all of the benefits and privileges that go with that, you teachers know this, a well-endowed like, you know, school district. And Tim actually was you know, at the apex of the administration, and he like, resigned. And I was like, why? What happened? And he goes, it's just nothing's wrong with it. They don't need me. I go, what are you talking about? And he says, they don't need me. He goes, I want to go somewhere where it's really screwed up. Where they, yeah, well, where we actually need, my, my strength is needed, and there are problems to solve, and there are kids who need that kind of leadership where it's going to be a bully-free environment. And that's actually when, when he was like, and it boggled me because it's so different from so many folks who actually try to find, like, what's the easiest assignment there is, the barest minimum, so I can sign up for that and then just, like, phone it in there. <laughs> Why? Why does Tim do that? Oh, for the big bucks, not so much. Because there's a burn here. There's a holy discontent inside that God's using. Thank you, Tim, for sharing that. Just awesome stuff. I appreciate it. <laughs> Folks, the reason why it's so critical for every follower of Christ to dig in and figure out what it is that wrecks you is because you may be the one person that God is actually looking for in order to reverse some ugly and destructive trends in this generation. In fact, when you find yourself standing on like the secret ground of like your burning bush experience, don't be surprised if you hear God say, actually, this is why I made you and wired you up this way. This is, this is, this is why I've let you have those mountaintop experiences as well as the, all the pain you've experienced because not one of your tears is going to be wasted. I plan to use every ounce of what you've been through for good in this specific area because I know you're devastated by the same thing that grieves me and I need someone exactly like you. To help me solve this. Let me say that last part again. God is looking for someone exactly like you. Someone who, who gets, gets wrecked on planet earth by the things that wreck God up in heaven. So that he can sign you up for service. I assure you there is a holy discontent with your name on it. Even if you don't know it now. You know why I say that with confidence? Because that's what a life following Jesus is about. Look, look at it this way. I put this in graphic form for you visual learners. Check this out. Here it is, your life. 
This is pretty simple, right? Okay? You see the horizontal line progressing to the right? That's your life. All those vertical tick marks, that represents the years of your life. I gave you like 70 years. You see it? Okay. <laughs> now, you see that little red cross there? That's the moment when someone turns over control of his or her life to the authority of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, that's an intentional determination to start living for someone other than yourself. Here's the deal. Not only do you secure a future in heaven with God forever, you see your destination there, but you step into a whole new kind of life here on earth. Now, here's the question of the day. Look at that. Do you notice there's room left? It's like there's this... There's, have you ever wondered why, when you turn your life over to God, you don't just get like express freighted to heaven? <laughs> or to put it a little more bluntly, why you're still here sucking air down earth? <laughs> here, right here. There's been thousands of books trying to answer that question, you know, that, that have been written. But I think there's like a single verse of scripture that speaks directly to that as anything else. Ephesians 2.10 says... We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We were all created to do good works. I was created to do good works, and I'm here to tell you with complete confidence, you were created to do good works, which explains why I know there's a holy discontent banging around in your brain somewhere. In other words, if you're alive and kicking and following Jesus Christ, then there's a specific work that God's prepared, check this out, in advance for you to do. A mission with your name on it. A seed that he planted in your soul long before you like, even arrived on the scene and that he remains wholeheartedly committed to watering, growing, and making into something meaningful if you'll let him. But you've got to be on the lookout for what that is. How many, how many of you have an idea of what that one thing is for you? So just, just going to get a sense of that, okay? Okay, that's oh, great. Probably about a, I don't know, fifth of the people. And that's, that's great. We're not expecting it. This isn't like, oh, I've got to figure out my one thing. I hope you're going to spend some time exploring this long after the service is over. I want to give you a caveat. I don't believe that every time something impacts you emotionally, it means you're called by God to lead the charge for that. For example, think about this. The fight I witnessed in the seventh grade between Jimmy and Joey, I mean, that affected me deeply. But do you notice something? God called another Tim. Tim Purnell to do something about it? The fact is, as we become increasingly conformed to the image of Christ, as we become like more and more compassionate and sensitive to the hurts and needs of a broken world in front of us, we actually should find ourselves moved on a heart level by a lot of things, a lot of society's ills, and actually work for the common good. All I'm saying, how critical it is for each of us to find that one thing that wrecks us inside and gives birth to a pop moment when we see it and we say, you know what? That's all I can stand. And I can't stand no more. And God, I want you to use me to renovate reality and spend my life making a difference and put a dent in this thing for the next generation. So let me end with a couple of very practical suggestions for the vast majority of us who are not sure what that one thing is. Because I realize that actually is the majority of us. And, and maybe you have no ideas we've been talking. And, and if that's you, I just want to encourage you. Don't give up. <laughs> Rather, expose yourself to the sights and sounds of a needy world. If you don't know what your holy discontent is, don't give up. It may take a, a lifetime to discover. I mean, God uses some people like in the second half of their life. Maybe you're retiring and you're like, I, actually, I'm just like, I'm like, I'm in, you know, halftime. I'm, I'm kind of in the end zone, third quarter, whatever you want to say. The last part of my life... <laughs> And I'm retiring and, well, I was going to play golf down in Boca. That was about it. I, <laughs> this may be the moment <laughs> where God actually harnesses all the experiences that he's given you, all of the talents he's nurtured and, and developed, and now the treasure that he's used and uses you. 
oftentimes it's something that we pass by every day that God uses to change us. That's what happened to a woman named Agnes. Agnes Bojachu, who was an average geography teacher who worked actually in India. She was a school teacher in, in Calcutta, and she taught geography. And every morning as she worked, walked to St. Mary's High School, where she taught to, to inspire young minds, all around the schools, conditions like were deplorable, third, third world country. And every day on her way to class, she'd have to step over men and women who were not only homeless, but actually dying from disease because the local hospitals wouldn't take them in. And that's when Agnes had her Popeye moment. Because every day something in her spirit would cry out, that, I, I just can't stand this anymore. And the sights and the sounds of gut-wrenching poverty wrecked her soul day in, day out, that she simply had to do something about it. So check this out. After her firestorm experience, Agnes, the geography teacher, quit her job teaching geography, got three or four of her former students, and set about the work of taking in men, women, and children who'd been rejected by local hospitals so that they could die with dignity. That's it. Took in lepers, took in prostitutes, and very quickly, little old Agnes became known as the saint of the gutters <laughs> for her hands-on care of the sick and the homeless. It was really only in 1950 when Agnes, the geography teacher, oh, who you may know by her more familiar name, Mother Teresa, received permission from the Vatican to launch her own order, the Missionaries of Charity, a ministry that began with three or four people has now become more than 4,000 nuns caring for orphans, refugees, alcoholics, drug addicts, prostitutes, the blind, the deaf, the destitute, the poorest of the poor in the dregs of the world. And you know what I love about Mother Teresa's legacy? Anyone ever see Mother Teresa? Maybe, probably not in person. You ever see her on TV? Here's what I love about Mother Teresa. When she comes up to like, give a speech somewhere, it's like this. Hello, everybody. I do want to see you. You just see the top of her head. She's this little old lady. She's not even five feet tall, and she looks like the sweetest like, kind of grandmother. But the funniest thing is when I saw her on CNN, I was like, holy smokes. She's got a raging fire inside. CNN once quoted her as saying, when I see waste, I feel angry on the inside. And then she looked apologetic. <laughs> she said, I don't approve of myself getting angry, but it's something you can't help after seeing Ethiopia. Little... Old grandma with this firestorm inside. And how'd it start? With a geography teacher who exposed herself to the sights and sounds of the destitute in her neighborhood and let it wreck her. She decided she couldn't stand the idea that anyone, especially the poorest of the poor, was living without hope and dying without dignity. What has God put in your path? It doesn't always come to you, and sometimes you've got to travel outside of your normal circuits. You have to actually venture into the inner city. You have to get amongst the poor. You have to go on a mission trip to, to places like the ones that sparked something in Bob Pierce or Mother Teresa. But here's the invitation. If you don't know, expose yourself to the sights and sounds of a world in need. Don't just settle down for domesticated suburban living. <laughs> Secondly, when you find it, if and when you find it, feed it. And this is counterintuitive, by the way, to most people. Because typically, like good Americans, when something is like deeply, like, distressing to us, causes like dis-ease in our souls, our initial instinct is like to totally like numb out, like let's go to Blockbuster and get a movie. I don't want to deal with that. You know, like <laughs> kind of like not deal with it. And this is the, and push it away. You feel that discontentness. You want to medicate it. The truth is the best thing you can do when you are disturbed by something that you see in the world is actually move towards your area of holy discontent and lean into it. 
So if the plight of single moms becomes your holy discontent, then you increase your exposure to single moms. You start hanging out with them. You invite them into your family's life. If it's the plight of the poor, then move towards the poor, not away from them. Don't move back out. Rearrange your life so you can see afresh the oppressive conditions some people are forced to live in. Feed it. Feed it. Feed it like a rock star. (laughs) It doesn't matter (laughs) what you do vocationally. God uses geography teachers, salesmen, artists to renovate reality. Maybe the best modern day example I can think of moving towards your discontent rather than away from it is Paul Hewson. You guys know Paul Houston? He's a, he's a singer-songwriter. He's had some good albums over the years. You may know a couple of his tunes, but um, it was back in the early 80s, right around the time of Live Aid. Who remembers Live Aid? Remember that? Paul's at Live Aid. He sensed God wanted more from him than just hit records. So check this out. Paul and his wife, Allie, got on a plane after Live Aid and actually headed for the Horn of Africa to see the famine that was devastating the entire continent. And they actually were so moved by it, they let their visas expire and spent the entire summer in Africa, Paul and his wife, serving food at an Ethiopian feeding camp. And they just let it wreck their hearts. And sear into it a passion for the people of Africa struggling under famine, debt, and disease. But here's the thing. Paul Hewson never quit his day job as a musician. In fact, you likely know him by his stage name, Bono, the lead singer for U2. And what's interesting is that today Bono... (laughs) is now more renowned for his humanitarian work in Africa than for selling 130 million albums worldwide. (laughs) And he has used his unprecedented fame and influence to draw attention to this generation's most pressing issues, AIDS and extreme poverty. He has personally lobbied world leaders for the cancellation of debt that actually played two-thirds of the world and fought tooth and nail for funding to fight the AIDS pandemic. And we form trade policy. All this, by the way, in addiction, in addition, <laughs> addiction, uh, to being lead singer for uh, just like one of the biggest bands in over two decades. And it's like, you thought your plate was full? <laughs> oh, yeah, I got the world tour thing, but I'm going to Africa. I remember um, on U2's last tour, Vertigo tour, seen them like seven or eight times. And uh, near the end of the concert, as the stadium was like, you know, going crazy, they come back on stage for an encore, and they start playing, and Bono kind of got, like, got, uh, like upset. He actually goes, stop, hold it, hold it. Like, cut the edge off, and, and Larry and Adam stop playing. And he grabs a microphone, he yells in the microphone, and he goes, who's ready to save the world? And you see, like, everyone standing there with their beer, like, all right, yeah, all right, whatever, you know. And he goes, take out your cell phones. And like everyone like kind of takes out their cell phone. He goes, hold them up. And it was, it was bizarre because the stadium, like 40,000 people, you see the sea of like lights like going up all over the place here, cell phone screens. And he says, right now, he goes, if this generation wants to make a difference, I want you to text your name to the number on the screen. And there's this like number on the screen. And you hear people like start dialing. It's like you're sending your message to the campaign to make poverty history. Over 1.6 million Americans who've chosen to get involved to eradicate extreme poverty all over the world. And that's something that's going to happen in our generation if I have something to say about it. And then they just like kick into walk on, which we'll be covering in a couple of weeks. And tens of thousands of people start text messaging. And this is the craziest thing. I don't even know how they do this technologically. On the Jumbotron, the names of each of the concert goers start scrolling up over the faces of starving children in Africa. And I'm like, who is this guy? (laughs) Just a rock star who's frustrated on earth by the same kinds of things that frustrate God in heaven. A follower of Jesus Christ who has actually taken up as his cause dismantling apathy. 
And every time I catch sight of you know, Bono's latest efforts or see him like on the cover of a magazine, I love that he's on the cover of Time magazine with Bill Gates, and it's not for music. <laughs> I have to remind myself that this is the same person who actually has money to burn and all the fame and fortune a person could ever want or need in a lifetime, and yet he's given it to something that he's like, that's not enough. I've got to be about something bigger. Bigger than 130 million albums sold. Bigger than dozens of sold-out world tours. Bigger than international fame. He fed the flame of his holy discontent, and he chose to follow it. Why? All because he went back in his 20s. He went to serve the poor in Ethiopia. And it wrecked him that summer. It wrecked his heart. And he finally said, I've got to give myself to something more than making records, because it's all I can stand. I can't stand them more. How about you? If you have the gift of holy frustration, maybe you thought it wasn't a gift, you thought it was like this nagging, kind of angry sense the world is a mess, you thank God for that, because that's a gift. Not everybody has that gift of vision. But it also means you have a responsibility to hear God's voice in that burning bush and respond as he leads you. Find it, feed it, and fan the flame. And God willing, perhaps, my generation, our generation, will never be the same. What can't you stand? If you know what your holy discontent is, we wanted to end by providing just two next steps for, uh, for taking a step tonight. And, um, and the first is really consider becoming a leader in our church. We need leaders. And the main opportunity for that is to actually lead a group, a small group. Small groups are simply gatherings, smaller gatherings of 6 to 12 people who actually get together for intentional growth in Christ. Here's what we do. We actually look at the story of God, how it relates to our story, Bible study we call it, prayer, actually talk with God, and common mission. And although small groups are on vacation for August, they resume in September, um, and those new groups launch this fall. But maybe you know what your holy discontent is today, but you lack others to share that with. Great. How about leading a small group on the matter? I was talking with a gal who she's like, my, my, my holy discontent is Guatemala. I go, what do, you, what do you mean? She goes, I've been there for the past five summers, and I would love to get some other people here to go. And we're like, start a small group. Go for it. Who wants to go? Michael Coyle, who just came on board as our new director of small groups, he's going to be in the lobby after the service if you want to, want to just talk, bounce ideas, find out more. But we're looking for leaders who are passionate, who have a bias for action, and can lead out of their holy discontent and, and, and get together with others around a shared passion or desire. So here's the deal. If you are interested in leading a group this fall, or even just hosting one at home, great way to get to know others, connect hearts, you can simply check this box. This is the connection card, and if, if you have that in your bulletin, we're going to invite you to, uh, to pull that out. Throw that up there, if you would, Jeff. And uh, we'll be in touch to discuss your interest. Even if you just have questions, you want to find out more, just check that. We're going to offer training. We want to help fan that flame of leadership in you. And secondly, maybe you're passionate about the next generation, youth. <laughs> maybe your holy discontent is seeing... You know, tweens and teens just kind of drifting along in life, assuming nobody cares, just playing Wii. <laughs> just playing video games, over-entertained and under-challenged without any purpose or direction. Well, here's the exciting news. The exciting news is that this fall, we are starting a brand new liquid youth group for both junior high and senior high. And we're like, above everything else, we just want people who are passionate about teens, who are crazy about teens. You've got to be kind of crazy to love teens. <laughs> who are passionate about actually investing themselves in the next generation and just loving on them and inviting them to discover their God-given purpose in life. And I'm praying, we're hoping that some of you will answer that call. If that's you, you can take a next step today and check off that box in your connection card. 
We're going to host this kickoff lunch in two weeks. Actually, I think it's on August 12th at 1230 for any adult leaders who are interested in helping lead our teens. We think we may have to make more room because of all the people in the earlier services, but we would love to have you for free lunch, if nothing else. I want you to think about your teen years. Were they good, by the way? <laughs> your teen years? Maybe you did have adults pour themselves into you. If so, great. We need to learn from you. If not, maybe your teen years were spent in, you know, just like bored to tears in church, rolling your eyes, even better. <laughs> Let that light a fire and lead us into something even better here at Liquid. So sign up, check that box, and we'll save a spot at lunch for you on the 12th. So two next steps for you to consider, and uh, my hope is that you can find a place a place right even here, to lead and serve our generation. Sound good? All right. Let's stand together and we'll pray for God's leading. Jesus, we just thank you. We thank you, God. Um, that, that doesn't take perfect people to change the world. It just takes willing people, open-hearted people. Lord, who see in this world and see upsetting things, Lord, and don't just, don't just either roll it off, blow it off, Lord, or forget about it or harden themselves to it, but keep their hearts soft and just connect it with yours. I thank you, Lord, that there are people in this room who you are already have plans for and you are literally going to use to change a generation. Lord, I thank you that there are people listening online in other countries who we may never meet face-to-face that you have plans for and you're going to use in a profound way to change their world. Thank you so much, Lord, for everything that um, you've taught us, everything that you challenged us with, and uh, we love you, Lord. And we just want to be about your business here on earth. We worship you now and thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.